This is a presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu. Hello, I'm James Tu, Senior Director of Content and Communications at Trine University, and I want to welcome you to Faculty Focus. This podcast features interviews with Trine University faculty members about their current research and their insights on issues impacting us all today. My guest today is Dr. Merrick Kolar, Associate Professor in Trine's Kettner School of Business. Dr. Kolar has particular expertise in macroeconomics and monetary policy, and today we're going to discuss the U.S. economy and where it might be headed. Thank you, Merrick, for joining me today. Well, hello, everyone, and uh, thank you, James, for uh, inviting me and uh, giving me the opportunity to hopefully shed light on uh, these complex issues. And, I mean, I think the economy right now is maybe more of a complex issue than about any time in history with uh, looking last year. We had, you know, obviously the COVID-19 pandemic hit that caused economic issues uh, we've had, you know, stimulus in the United States. We've had, you know, different countries doing different things. Globally, worldwide, what does the economy look like at this point? Okay, so uh, at this point, uh, um, no one really knows how it's all going to end. Uh, but what we do know is that uh, um, pretty much the major central banks have had similar response and the governments to, to covid uh, so the uh, the Fed, the central bank of the U.S., as well as the European Central Bank, about doubled their uh, balance sheet, meaning they uh, printed a lot of money, trillions of dollars. The Japanese central bank, a little bit less, but uh, in Japan, they had the most uh, fiscal stimulus, uh, which was about 56% of their GDP. So uh, equivalent to the U.S. would be over $10 trillion of uh, government spending uh, in uh, uh, relative to their economy. And uh, um, pretty much uh, across the uh, most of the countries, we've seen partial lockdowns, business uh, partial business shutdown. I just came back from uh, visiting uh, my family in the Czech Republic. Uh, very similar situation there. Uh, government spending a lot more money than usual. Uh, economy slowly reopening. Uh, but I think so. We've seen uh, similar responses. But uh, I think what's important to recognize is that there were problems with. Uh, economies, not only in the U.S., but uh, also in Europe and Japan before COVID. Uh, for example, in the U.S., the uh, central bank started loosening their monetary policy in 2019 before COVID. So I think uh, we are still uh, going to uh, have to deal with uh, the economy as it was before COVID. And now uh, the uh, uh, current difficulties will make the situation uh, more difficult to deal with. So we have... Uh, um, government uh, budget uh, deficit, uh, large national debt uh, before uh, what happened last year before then, 0% or close to interest rates in uh, uh, the major economies, uh, US, Japan, in, in, in Europe. And uh, so the uh, economies or the, uh, uh, the governments and central banks uh, never really normalized their economies after the 2008 uh, financial crisis. And so that's still out there and now uh, there's even more uh, debt and money printing. So what uh, problems pre-COVID were the different economies having? What, you know, maybe the U.S. in particular, but some of the other industrialized nations? 
So essentially, since uh, or when you look at the last three uh, recessions or going back from uh, early 1980s, we've seen every time there's a recession, uh, particularly in the US, uh, the government seems to respond more strongly. And so you could argue that uh, we haven't had a, a real recession actually um, play out. And so it's almost as if uh, we were kicking a can uh, down, the, down the road. And uh, uh, every time there's a recession, we have lower interest rates, more money printing. It seems to be more difficult to get the economy uh, back. And uh, again, after 2008 in the U.S., there were close to 0% interest rates for, and, uh, for, for almost uh, essentially 10 years. Unprecedented level of uh, easy monetary policy. And uh, the, uh, the Fed in the U.S. started to, um, let's say, normalize the, or um, tighten the monetary policy in around 2018. And in 2019, there were, there were some problems in the, uh, in the federal funds market the uh, and and the the fed essentially reversed its course and started lowering the interest rate again so it seems like the economy never fully uh, recovered and got back on track in the uh, at the minimum the monetary policy or the economic policy of uh, has never normalized since then okay now you mentioned about you know zero percent or very low interest rates you know to to me as a consumer you know that that's a good thing. You know, I can get my uh, home loan cheaper or, you know, a car loan. You know, if I, if I have credit cards, you know, those are lower interest rates. What are, what are the dangers or the downsides of uh, those ongoing low interest rates? So what it essentially means is that the uh, government is uh, deciding uh, how to allocate resources throughout the economy. And uh, it discourages uh, saving and capital formation. So even though monetary stimulus and um, for, you know, we can say money printing uh, leads to perhaps a temporary uh, boost in uh, the economic activity, in the long term, uh, it encourages consumption, discourages saving, discourages uh, investment, uh, basically resources uh, are taken away uh, and consumed rather than being invested by businesses. And so uh, in, in the long term, uh, it leads to a situation where we have uh, less saving than we would have otherwise and uh, less uh, investment is being done by businesses and uh, leads to lower economic growth. Okay. So the businesses are, um, when you say investing, are you talking, because, uh, you know, obviously if the, the interest rates are less, they're going to buy equipment or things like that because they can finance it better. So what are they, what are they not investing in, in this case? So, um, as you see nowadays, uh, it seems like there are a lot of markets that uh, we could say, uh, we could use the term bubble, where uh, prices are being bid up. And uh, what happens is that uh, there may be a lot of uh, activities started, but uh, the, the, uh, the central bank, they can print money, but they cannot print more resources. And so if people consume more, and uh, we, the economy produces more cars and more TVs, well, then that means necessarily that there's uh, going to be less uh, machinery, less equipment uh, manufactured. And uh, uh, what we see now is uh, higher and increasing levels of inflation, 
where it seems where uh, we may be headed is uh, what uh, we may call stagflation, where we are spending more money, but we may end up buying fewer things because it simply could result in higher prices. And so um, when uh, the the government starts getting more involved in uh, in the uh, allocation of resources, um, the uh, businesses may end up making more errors because the price signal price signals no longer work as they would normally. Interest rates uh, are prices that uh, send signal to businesses uh, where to invest, how much to invest, whether to invest in more long-term projects or something more short-term. And what we may see is, uh, uh, for example, in uh, before 2008, we saw a lot of investment in the housing market, which we see again nowadays. And uh, that could possibly be overbuilt, meaning inconsistent with uh, long-term uh, demand and supply. So we may see some sectors of the economy uh, being overbuilt, and uh, there that leads to a, a necessary uh, contraction or crash uh, later on. And uh, the uh, what, what what we really need is for the economy to restructure and get back on track. And in my opinion, the longer the government, uh, uh, let's say, prints money, and it prevents uh, some of the activities, businesses, or perhaps industries from uh, from uh, uh, shrinking and maybe the resources flowing to where they are the most productive. Kind of looking at it then, what, if, if you were in charge of the Fed, what would you do? <laughs> um, so if, um, so number one, um, I would question the very existence and uh, uh, whether we uh, really need a, a central bank. Because uh, as you, um, you know, as we teach in uh, introductory economics courses, central planning doesn't seem to work. And so we have a situation where we have mostly market economy, but in the arena of uh, money and interest rates, we do have uh, essentially central planning where the government, the central bank plans the interest rates. Um, So we did have time before where we did not have central banks. And so that, that would be a different discussion. But uh, the, uh, the central bank, uh, in my opinion, should simply try to uh, stay as much as possible out of the uh, business of uh, trying to stimulate the economy uh, during recessions and essentially have a uh, hold, uh, per- perhaps uh, uh, have a fixed uh, increases in, uh, in money supply and, and uh, try, to, uh, try to have the interest rate at a relatively normal, normal level. And I think right now, for sure, we... Uh, should probably have higher interest rates uh, because, as as we've seen also in Europe, there are problems from uh, being close to zero or having negative interest rates. Um, it 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 creates a situation where businesses we we have companies that uh, borrow money just because interest rates are low. We have record number of what they call uh, zombie companies in uh, in the U.S., where I believe around uh, or, or over 25 percent of all companies. Uh, don't make enough profit to to cover their interest payments at least for for a few uh, uh, continuous quarters, and so uh, it leads to a situation where uh, there is a lot of debt uh, with the government, with the private sector, and uh, we got ourselves or the uh, the central bank into a situation where if the interest rates rise, it'll make it very difficult for the U.S. government or for many companies to, uh, to, to, to be able to pay or make the interest payment. So right now, for the U.S. government, with uh, $28 trillion of national debt, the interest payments uh, have been 
over uh, $500 billion a year, and that's with record low interest rates. So if the central bank uh, were to allow the interest rates rise to more normal levels, we could see uh, the uh, interest payments on U.S. national debt being over $1 trillion, uh, larger than our total spending on, on, on military and, and, and so on. So um, potentially or for sure uh, in, uh, in the future, th there, there will be um, problems because uh, at some point the uh, economic situation will have to be uh, more normal or the interest rates will have to rise. And uh, um, that will put the U.S. government into a very difficult position as well as the, the Federal Reserve Bank. And you've mentioned a couple times about kind of the, the central bank or the U.S. government kind of maybe artificially trying to shorten recessions. Um, so what, what is the danger of doing that? I mean, obviously nobody likes a recession because you have – you know, people lose jobs and you know, um, are unable to keep up. You know, you have people who are struggling through that. So what what becomes the danger with with keeping those artificially short? So there are, um, if we simplify, two views. And so in in the view of the the uh, central banks and the government's uh, economists. Uh, the, the way it works is uh, if the government stimulates the economy, if the Fed prints money, uh, the demand will increase. And in their view, demand is what drives uh, GDP. And uh, we have uh, when we have recession, we have a recession because there's not enough demand. And so the idea is that we, uh, when the government stimulates the economy, there'll be more demand and the economy will get out of a recession, meaning increased GDP to, uh, to, to a, a full let's say, full capacity of the economy where the unemployment rate gets lower. In uh, the view of, um, let's say, Austrian economists, uh, which is an alternative view, uh, the problem that uh, uh, we face with the economy is uh, that when uh, the central bank uh, artificially lowers interest rates by uh, having a looser monetary policy, it leads to these... Uh, uh, bubbles or to more investment than uh, the resources than are, as we talked about before, are not necessarily available because consumers increase spending, they're not saving as much. And uh, uh, some of the uh, sectors of the economy uh, then are overbuilt, like the housing sector. And then when uh, it actually collapse, eventually collapses, it's the economy's uh, response or the, the, the natural um, process by markets to uh, to, to get back to uh, long run where the demand and supply are more more in line. And so sectors that were overbuilt are um, shrinking. And um, when the government comes in and, and stimulates back the uh, housing sector or the car market to, let's say, a uh, number of cars being manufactured that, that is higher than we would have otherwise, it, it keeps these, uh, this uh, situation in place that is not sustainable long term. And it keeps the uh, the the recession that uh, that is the natural, let's say, cleansing mechanism where uh, the economy gets back on track. It keeps uh, that that from happening, uh, and so that would be the criticism of, uh, you know, from uh, uh, particularly the Austrian school of economics, uh, that uh, the the government is preventing the economy from uh, restructuring and from getting back on on track. And is that one of those things where the more they try to put it off, the worse it's going to be when it happens? So uh, definitely what we've seen is that the, uh, the debt, the, the national debt of the government is a bigger and bigger problem. 
Um, and uh, as uh, it, it does seem that way, if uh, let's say back in uh, 2000, uh, 2001, there was a recession, the, the Fed uh, the, uh, uh, at that time essentially um, told everyone that there were one of the ways they were going to stimulate the economy was to uh, stimulate the housing market. And that led to the uh, situation that we faced in uh, 2008. Uh, if uh, so, in my opinion, if the uh, if the central bank let uh, the recession played out and play out in 2001, we would have had uh, a deeper uh, recession that uh, probably would not last that long. But after that, uh, uh, we probably wouldn't have those uh, problems that we have today. Beyond interest rates, I mean, one thing the government did last year as well was uh, economic impact payments, with the idea that you know we'll give everybody. One point it was well, I think sixteen hundred, and we had a six hundred payment, a fourteen hundred payment to get the economy going. Does the is that really an effective way to stimulate the economy? And did that help turn around what happened from COVID? So we uh, probably should look at this at uh, different uh, uh, different aspects of this. So there are definitely people that are struggling and that uh, will benefit from. Uh, the the payments or the stimulus payments from the government. However, um, in terms of, uh, again, it leads to uh, more consumption, less resources for businesses that are trying to uh, respond to, to the situation, right? So the more money the government spends, the less is available in the, in the private sector. And what, what we see at the moment is that we have um, increasing spending. And so there's a lot of uh, you know, there's anecdotal evidence where a lot of the stimulus money was spent uh, in, at uh, Robinhood buying stocks. There, there are articles on how uh, some of the trades were the exact amounts of s- stimulus checks. So um, a lot of people that got these checks uh, perhaps didn't uh, need that money. Um, but also we have uh, increases in spending, but at the same time uh, we have fewer people working. And combined with uh, the government uh, uh, increasing the benefits, so um, you know I was just looking at an article, and this is data from Pennsylvania, uh, but essentially they were uh, looking at uh, um, for uh, a lot of occupations uh, where if someone stays at home, uh, not working, they they make more on the unemployment uh, benefits than if they were working. So the uh, the data were if someone, uh, for example, was working on minimum wage. If they uh, decided not to work, they're, they're getting over $11 per hour on average. And it's true for some uh, other occupations as well. Um, and so we have a situation where we have more spending, uh, but we have lower production. And so one of the um, factors that uh, makes this uh, a little bit easier is that we are importing more from, um, from countries like China. And so we have record trade deficits in, in the sense that we are importing more than we're exporting. And so that helps uh, where we helps us to consume more, even though we're not uh, producing. But this is not a healthy situation for the economy where we have uh, over 10 million. So I think the latest, uh, there are just some numbers that came out today. We have 15.4 million people on uh, unemployment assistance. Uh, and that includes the usual uh, benefits plus the, um, the, the the special pandemic benefits. Uh, now this number was at uh, around 30 million 
last year, so it's going down. But we still have, relative to no, uh, near normal times, we have about two million people receiving unemployment benefits. Right now, we have uh, we have uh, over fifteen million. So that means we have millions and millions of people out of work than uh, th th that normally would be working. And so definitely, we're producing less. We're consuming more. Um, and and so the uh, in fact, there are some states. Uh, in uh, uh, I think Indiana is uh, scheduled. Uh, I believe it's June either 19 or 26, where the unemployment uh, benefits are set to expire or um, uh, originally scheduled to expire in September by the federal government. And uh, the reasoning is that uh, they uh, the, it just uh, businesses are unable to find people to uh, to work, and uh, they have a hard time uh, reopening. And uh, so there's an effort to get people back to work. And that's why uh, many of these states, so uh, I think the numbers were around 2.6 million people will uh, soon in a few weeks lose their uh, benefits. So that's another uh, thing to watch for. You know, the, the, So if um, a lot of these people that are getting benefits now, if they don't no longer receive them, if they're unable to find a job, so many of them will probably stay unemployed. Uh, they may start, uh, you know, they, they, they may really be struggling. They, they may start defaulting on mortgage payment, rent payment. So in turn, uh, the, the lenders uh, will be in a uh, in more difficult uh, position where they're not getting, uh, they're not getting paid. And uh, so we may see some more problems in, in that sense. So um, some of those uh, issues have been postponed by uh, the, the, the government policy where they allow people not not to pay rents and postpone postpone payments on student loans, and so we still haven't seen the full effects of uh, uh, the, this uh, you know shutdown we we just had. And you mentioned the fact that unemployment benefits are more than a minimum wage, what a person would make at a minimum wage job, and that's another kind of push right now going on in the government is you know raising the minimum wage. I don't know if. You know, again, if the benefit would compare to the how that would compare to the fifteen dollars an hour that's being proposed, and there's a lot of talk on both sides of that issue that you know you, that it would maybe hurt small businesses, but at the same point allow people to uh, make what they need. What do you think are the positives and negatives of looking of the push to raise the minimum minimum wage? So one thing I um, you know I should probably uh, or would like to mention is that um, the situation where people are getting more money to stay at home, uh, it's, 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 not, it's nothing new. So uh, pre-COVID, uh, I was just looking at uh, some, uh, some numbers, but uh, for, for example, uh, there's an article that goes over, uh, if um, th you have stages where uh, if you make uh, more income, you may actually end up with less take-home pay due to the uh, welfare system. So uh, th there was an example of uh, a single mom uh, that make, let's say if she makes uh, 50, it was about $51,000 in gross income. If she goes up to 65, she will actually take home less, uh, less money. Um, and uh, uh, so, so uh, we have that situation even more now in, uh, in the sense that people are literally paid to, to stay home and not go to work. Now, in in, uh, in case of uh, minimum wage, um, so you have to uh, recognize that uh, employers will not pay someone more than what they contribute to the to the business, right? So, if someone's uh, getting uh, ten dollars per hour, 
and let's say they're contributing uh, $12 per hour to the business profit, there's uh, probably uh, no way that that business owner will uh, keep that uh, worker on when they have to pay them at least 15. So, you know, if you take the, uh, so um, some people, there'll, there'll be people that may, that they'll see a raise, right? But there'll also be many people that will lose jobs. So take an example of uh, someone that's, uh, let's say, is uh, making $14 per hour. And uh, maybe the next best job they would be able to find is, uh, would give them $12, would pay them $12. So essentially it would be the cost for them of, uh, of, uh, of, that, of uh, uh, having that job. So the, for the business, maybe they're creating $16 worth of, uh, worth of profit per hour for the business. And so maybe they, they agreed to pay them uh, $14 per hour. So that, that worker may uh, will, will see a raise from 14 to 15 and they'll be uh, better off. Now, this, this, will be a, uh, this would be in this example, a straight redistribution of wealth from the business owner to the worker, right? Now, uh, many of these workers uh, will simply be laid off. Uh, probably the biggest problem with uh, minimum wage that I see is that it prevents uh, first time uh, let's say job seekers, someone that uh, just got out of high school, they're looking for their first full-time job. Um, you know, not, nowadays they may be hired by uh, McDonald's, uh, $10 per hour or something like that. If the minimum wage is $15, they may not be able to find a job. Now they end up on a, a welfare program. They're, they're unable to uh, improve their skills. So usually the, the way it works in the U.S., we have very mobile uh, labor market and so someone that starts uh, as uh, as a young person at ten dollars per hour they'll quickly move up typically and may end up uh, uh, with significant just just a few years down the down the road they may end up with significant uh, raises but the problem is that if you never get that first job uh, you may uh, you may be permanently on on government welfare now is that also playing into i mean i i know just even driving around angola uh, you see help wanted signs up everywhere is that an effect of, of this right now um, I've also been reading articles that have talked about you know that the birth rates in the US are declining there's less there's less kids for those um, entry-level jobs and that seems to be a trend that worldwide is going to continue how does that play into all this so there's probably uh, many many issues at, at play uh, it also goes back to uh, education so the the uh, the kind of uh, training that uh, uh, people receive at uh, at uh, lower uh, school levels or at elementary school, high school, um, it, it, part of that is the maybe uh, what nowadays with the current generation, parents uh, seem to be a lot wealthier on average than than maybe a few decades ago. Um, so maybe that allows uh, kids to not work so hard, um, and. As we talked about, the um, support from the government plays uh, plays a role. Um, another number we can bring in is uh, we have record number of people on food stamps. So um, I think now overall in the U.S. you had uh, about 37 million people before COVID. Now it's 42 million people. We've seen 20% increase in uh, Indiana of people on food stamps. So there are uh, many people on uh, on. Uh, um, you know, receiving uh, some kind of benefits from the from the government. We also saw last year a record 34% of all income being received from government. So when you take all income received in the U.S. by people, if you take the total, 34% of that came from the government. 
in one way as one way or another. So we, we've seen record uh, involvement there. Now, in terms of the birth rate uh, and uh, the changing demographics where we are seeing older uh, population on average, um, it, it's going to have a big impact on Social Security in particular, where the Social Security program, and perhaps many people don't realize that, uh, it's a uh, what, what they call pay-as-you-go system. And so there's no uh, fund anywhere. Uh, what it means is that uh, the current workers are essentially sending money uh, with the government as intermediary to, to the current uh, retirees. And so as we have fewer and fewer people uh, working relative to each uh, retiree, it, it brings uh, the Social Security program into, um, you know, into a deficit where the, it collects uh, less money now than what it pays out. And so that in particular, the Social Security system will see a big impact. Uh, the government is getting more and more involved in the uh, healthcare uh, sector. So when there are more uh, people that need care, that will make it more difficult for uh, for the healthcare uh, sector as a whole. Uh, we'll see shifts in uh, uh, more people needing uh, care uh, at home. So that means for, uh, let's say, for current students, uh, there'll be a lot more opportunities in fields like nursing. Um, but also it could have uh, other impacts. So, for example, as we have uh, uh, more people aging and reaching the retirement age, they'll start withdrawing more from their retirement accounts. So I've seen people speculating that it may lead to more uh, sales of stocks, may lead to decline in the stock market. So we'll see definitely a lot of impact. Now you, you talk about, again, the government providing so much income, and, and obviously that's not a good thing on a, on a long-term basis. So how do, what's the best way to get people to transition from that into being productive members of the economy? What you uh, have to look at is that uh, people respond to incentives. And so if uh, the, the more incentive they get from the government not to work, uh, the, the uh, you know, we'll see more of them not working. And so whether there is a role for government to sponsor some kind of retraining programs, uh, I, I don't know. I would be in favor of just uh, freeing up the, the markets to respond to that. Uh, because if, uh, if you look at basic, uh, the basic way that the economy works or the market works, uh, there's no reason for people to be unemployed, right? Because it's simple demand and supply. So just like uh, there's competition for everything, there's uh, competition for workers by businesses. So if someone, uh, let's say, is able to create uh, uh, $10 worth of uh, product or profit for businesses, then uh, businesses will compete to to hire those people. And uh, um, that they're there will be opportunities for people and, and companies uh, constantly provide training opportunities. Um, so I, I think the, typically uh, the private sector is more efficient at allocating resources than the government. So my, uh, my guess would be that the private sector would also be better at, at uh, things like retraining workers and providing them with opportunities. Um, but uh, things like uh, you, you know policies like minimum wage prevent this uh, from from happening right because uh, and and also the increasing regulation of businesses the danger of being sued uh, by by, uh, by by workers and so all of that makes workers more expensive and one 
uh, result of that is more automation where we see self-checkouts increasingly more at uh, grocery stores. We see self-kiosk, uh, uh, ordering kiosk at uh, places like McDonald's. Now we uh, see uh, uh, those fast food restaurants are coming up with uh, ways to uh, automate more so they now have robots to flip hamburgers and, and, and so on. And so that's uh, from a large part due to uh, how, you know, the... The, the, the increasing costs associated with employing someone. It's not just the wage, it's the non-wage, it's, uh, it's the mandates for health benefits from the government, the increased uh, regulation and, and, and all of those uh, together. Probably a flip side of that argument, and it's probably a lot less true today, but maybe even more so in the early part of the 20th century in the U.S., is you know businesses can, uh, depending on the business focus, be focused entirely on profit and not necessarily on the welfare of the people they're employing. And so, you know, the, 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 if there's, you know, no regulation, you know, then that can uh, have negative impacts as well. So how do you, how do you balance that? So um, you could argue that in a, in a market economy, uh, if you uh, look at, uh, you know, imagine that you are a business owner, your employees are one of the most important assets to you. So the last thing you want to do is to, um, you know, mistreat your employees. I believe that uh, business owners have all the incentives, and and you know, when you think about uh, locally, uh, any businesses that you know, I don't know if you can point out to anyone that uh, doesn't handle their employees well, right? So, uh, pe people probably have this notion that, uh, you know, maybe these business owners are some evil people that exploit their workers. But anyone I know uh, at a local level, I, I don't know of anyone uh, that uh, will survive. You know, I don't know of any successful business people that, uh, uh, you know, that are exploiting their workers. And um, again, there's competition. And uh, in a uh, market economy, uh, workers have or everyone has a choice to, to switch. And so uh, if, uh, let's say, you're not happy or someone's not happy working at Walmart, um, then they're, they're, they can uh, um, find other uh, opportunities elsewhere. And uh, the, the best thing the government can do is to provide environment where uh, there is a saving and efficient uh, investment by businesses and capital because wages are a, f are a function of uh, workers' productivity. And so how much output can a worker produce in, in an hour that's going to determine their wage? And so if, if, they're, uh, if businesses are able to acquire uh, more machinery, more equipment, so if a automobile factory has better uh, machinery, better technology, or a shoe factory, then they'll be able to produce more shoes or more cars per worker hour, and then that'll, that'll lead to higher wages. And so to the extent that the government uh, gives incentives to not to invest, uh, increases taxes, business tax, uh, capital gains tax, as we, as we see now, uh, incentivizes people to consume rather than save, there's going to be less investment by businesses to the extent that the government steers resources maybe to industries that may not be as, uh, as efficient. Again, there'll be lower productivity. So... Um, when we end up with uh, less production overall, lower productivity in the economy, that also leads to lower wages. So that the source uh, over, uh, you know, over the, the history over last hundred years or a few hundred years, the reason why we have economic, why we've had economic growth in the U.S. is because 
we have more capital, we have better technology that comes from uh, businesses uh, having incentive to, to invest. If you take away profits from businesses, they will not have the incentive to, uh, to make their companies better, to find uh, more productive uh, business activities. And so when businesses find uh, uh, new products, uh, when they innovate, when they accumulate more uh, capital goods, more, um, again, machinery and equipment, they make more profit, but in the process, they're able to offer higher returns to the shareholders, to the lenders, more wages to their employees. Um, and that's that's the only way in the long run, the increase in productivity that's going to also drive increase in wages. Um, what we see nowadays is uh, the government, the central bank printing money. And uh, if, 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 uh, if you don't have more production, um, then printing money doesn't doesn't result in in uh, more goods or higher living standards. So we've seen uh, examples throughout history of uh, that there's no uh, lack of countries that printed a lot of money, but it doesn't usually end well. Um, so the it's th there are no shortcuts to uh, to a healthy economy. What we need is uh, businesses that are productive that invest. Now, what kind of impacts? I know one one of the things again going through. I think through Congress right now was proposal for I believe it's six trillion dollars to uh, redo roads to redo infrastructure. What kind of impact does something like that have? So um, there, there again, there are a few a uh, few things to look at. Number one, in in theory, uh, if the government spends money on infrastructure um, and it's productive. It's something that, uh, that that actually does improve uh, the infrastructure. Then, uh, long term, that'll result in a more productive economy. So, you could uh, possibly argue that uh, some of this infrastructure spending may be more uh, more useful than uh, giving direct checks to people. But a couple problems with that. So, we know that anytime anything passes through Congress, there are always uh, a lot of money attached uh, that essentially uh, you know we could say are uh, wasted in the sense that a lot of that spending is done for for political reason what we saw in uh, 2008 with uh, president obama's package uh, if you remember there were not enough uh, so-called shovel ready programs so if the government wants to spend uh, trillions of dollars it may be very difficult to find uh, ready opportunities to, to invest in infrastructure. In general, I believe, uh, as many, uh, most economists do, that uh, the private sector is uh, more efficient in allocating resources. And so for the government to decide what should be financed and what not, uh, it's gonna be very difficult for them. They may end up uh, uh, subsidizing or financing uh, industries that uh, may not uh, have a long-term future, or um, it, it, it essentially, they may not be the the best in uh, in uh, doing the infrastructure spending. But again, to the extent that we're just uh, let's say fixing, so take a uh, let's say a bridge that's kind of fallen apart. If you fix that bridge. That doesn't necessarily result, uh, you know, in more goods produced. It's just we're just fixing something that uh, that that was broke, and so I think uh, what uh, the argument would be on behalf of a lot of people is that uh, with uh, the spending, it's 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 going to also stimulate overall demand, and uh, that way it's going to result in higher GDP, 
and uh, again we're we're at that this is the uh, so, sort of conflict between uh, looking at the economy as driven by consumption and demand versus looking at the economy as uh, driven by uh, production and investment. And so I would say that uh, uh, simply spending more money uh, doesn't result in, uh, in uh, it, it could, again, temporarily stimulate the economy, but in the long run, I believe it, uh, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't help. So I would discount the impact on the aggregate demand and simply focus on uh, uh, whether the uh, investment in infrastructure is productive, will improve the infrastructure. If that is the case, uh, then uh, it, it potentially will be helpful. Um, however, again, uh, I think uh, if, uh, trillions of dollars is probably way too much in the sense that there may not be as many uh, uh, worthy projects. Now you've mentioned several times about you know the government keeping printing money, um, and and I think you know any one of us who you know we all have our own individual budgets, and and we know at some point if we kept handing out money, we would run out of it. I guess that's a question. When does the government run out of money? So um, we in the U.S., we are the only country, uh, and that goes back to uh, the monetary system that existed before uh, the current uh, system. So again, if we simplify the, the, the world before uh, World War I, World War II was on a gold standard. So essentially, every country was using gold as, uh, as their money. So you may have had uh, Deutsche Mark or British Pound, but essentially these were weights of gold. Uh, after uh, World War I, uh, eventually uh, the economies or the, the, the world uh, transitioned to uh, what, what we could call or what was called Bretton Woods system. So instead of uh, currencies being backed by gold, the system was starting in, uh, I believe, 1948. Uh, the, all the countries other than the U.S., or most of them, were using U.S. dollars as their reserves, so those central banks. So they, and U.S. dollar was the only one that was backed by gold until 1971, 1972. And so after 1972, where the U.S. government basically said we no longer uh, redeem U.S. dollars in gold, uh, the, most of the world international transactions are still done using dollar, uh, central banks across the world hold dollars. And so that gives huge uh, benefit to the U.S. in the sense that U.S. dollars are in high demand across the world. And uh, so people refer to that as the uh, reserve status of, of the U.S. dollar. Now we've seen uh, this uh, slowly eroding and to the extent that the U.S. government runs uh, these unsustainable uh, budget deficits where we saw a new projection from the, I think, the Congressional Budget Office for the next 10 years where they plan a budget deficit for every single year. Now, they, uh, what the government will uh, tell you is that, or the economists, if the economy grows faster, so if the GDP increases at a faster rate than the percent deficit, then that's sustainable. Uh, but that's going to be very difficult to, to, to achieve. So the, uh, at the moment, uh, the government is spending roughly $2 for every dollar they collect in taxes. And so we have, uh, it, we have uh, essentially unsustainable levels of uh, government spending and debt in the U.S. So uh, slowly we've seen, uh, we've seen uh, uh, an effort uh, on by uh, other countries or their central banks to lower the share of uh, U.S. dollar as, uh, in their reserves as they hold it. Uh, just today uh, there was... Uh, 
there was news uh, Russia their uh, their sovereign wealth fund, which is uh, like a two hundred billion dollar fund managed by the Russian government. They they're getting rid of all the dollar assets that that, but that also has reasons in in politics in these uh, uh, you know U- U.S. threatening to sanction. But uh, nevertheless, uh, uh, there's more and more international trade conducted using other currencies than dollar. So um, once or if uh, or when other countries uh, stop using U.S. dollar so much, that's going to create a bigger problem for us. So right now we have increasing prices, and that should not be surprising because, uh, again, there's more and more spending as the government's printing money and there's less production. So uh, we've seen uh, rising prices, the latest consumer price index data, we see uh, over 4% increase in the consumer price index from uh, from last year, which is the highest since, I believe, since 2008. So we have increasing, uh, increasing uh, prices. And if uh, the U.S. Uh, keeps uh, losing more and more of the share of, of being used internationally, uh, we will have bigger and bigger inflation problem as uh, the dollar may uh, lose value in the foreign exchange market and we'll see bigger uh, inflation. And, uh, you know, that's that's really the current problem for uh, the central bank, just like we saw in 1970s, where when uh, uh, the U.S. had uh, two or three uh, recessions, at the same time there were very high inflation rates, uh, double digit, so 15, um, you know, over 15%. And so if we get into that situation where we have rising inflation rate, but we have kind of a sluggish uh, economy or GDP, uh, then the central bank is really in a box where uh, they would have to dis- they will have to decide whether to fight inflation or whether to stimulate the economy, right? Because to fight inflation, you need to uh, raise the interest rates, you need to cut the money supply, and if you if if they do that, they, they will create that uh, they'll create a big uh, uh, financial crisis, and so that's you know that's what. That, that's the current uh, problem with the economy or what, what could happen is this uh, stagflation problem, high inflation, recession. Uh, we already have, again, 0% interest rate. Uh, very difficult for the government, for the central bank to respond to a uh, potential another recession where they uh, cannot really cut the interest rate any lower, uh, limited uh, uh, tools in terms of, uh, you know, and again, if they print more money, they, that may uh, exacerbate the inflation problem. Well, we've we've covered a lot of different things. Uh, what other challenges do you think both the U.S. economy and uh, maybe even the global economy are facing right now? So I think the the main again is the uh, the uh, debt throughout throughout the both private public sector, the uh, ongoing or starting uh, big inflation where we see food prices going up, where we see um, you know material prices going up. We see anecdotal evidence. I was just looking at an article in in Denmark. Uh, raw material prices are up 22% from last year. So uh, across the world, we see rising uh, futures prices for commodities, um, and, and so the that, that's the um, you know that that's going to be the the biggest issue. Um, also, you know, another example in uh, if you remember from uh, uh, in 2008. The, some people may remember the uh, mortgage-backed securities. So what, what was happening in 2000 or before 2008 was uh, that uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac um, were 
government, uh, you know, sponsored entities that were encouraging home uh, ownership. That was their policy. And so you saw companies like Wells Fargo uh, loaning money, you know, uh, and then selling that debt to Fannie and Freddie. Uh, and then these uh, mortgage loans were packaged together, sliced up, uh, let's say, and then uh, securities were sold off. And so when you bought this mortgage-backed security, you were entitled to a little tiny piece of uh people paying, making mortgage payments. And the idea was that this was uh, safe because uh, it was based on many, many uh, mortgage payments. And the idea was that not, not too many people will default at the same time. And that turned out not to be the case when the housing market turned down and many people found themselves um, with uh, owing more money than what their house was worth. They started defaulting on their mortgage payments and uh, the whole mortgage-backed securities market collapsed. The central bank, the Fed, ended up uh, uh, saving the market by buying all these mortgage-backed securities where now we see uh, similar, uh, we see these uh, uh, CLOs, collateralized uh, loan obligations. So what's what's happening is that uh, as the interest rates are really low, um, companies, people are, are looking for returns. So it no longer is enough to buy uh, your typical bonds because they have very low returns. So if you buy treasury bonds, you uh, have negative real rates of return. So people are looking for higher yields. So what's been uh, happening is that uh, something similar to what we saw with mortgage-backed securities where uh, loans are made to very uh, poor credit rating or credit quality companies. And these loans are then packaged together and because they're packaged together, because they're, uh, let's say, they, they would say they're diversified, they're, they're assigned a higher credit rating. And so now they have investment grade. Um, now pension funds, for example, can buy these. And so it's just like with mortgage-backed securities. We see these uh, uh, CLOs that uh, uh, are based on payments from uh, very low-quality uh, borrowers. And so, again, the danger is when the interest rates rise in the future, many of these businesses will start defaulting because they won't be able to make interest payments. And what we know is in recessions, capital usually flows, uh, money flows from, resources flow from poor uh, quality companies uh, in terms of uh, borrowing ability to, to better quality. And so we probably will see a lot of uh, companies default. And again, that could uh, create a similar situation with these uh, collateralized uh, loan obligations that we saw with mortgage-backed securities. So again, it's going to be uh, the, the biggest problem is all the debt and all the incentive that uh, uh, both uh, the private sector, the private companies, uh, individuals, the, the government have to, to borrow more, more and more money. Well, once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Merrick Kolar for joining me today for Faculty Focus. Be sure to check back for new episodes as Trine faculty members talk about their research interests and the issues of the day. Thank you for having me, James. Thanks for listening to this presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu.